Welcome to the fourth episode of Season 4 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 4 of the podcast features lectures written and delivered by Cedar Saigo during his time as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Saigo's lectures plumb the particulars of influence, history, tone, and form to beget a singular autobiography of voice. Across these talks, Saigo explores his childhood on the Suquamish Reservation, his coming to poetry, and the dream of composition. He pays homage to a glittering constellation of postmodernist and revolutionary teachers, artists, and peers, and builds enduring and pointed questions of agency, interdependence, lineage, and transformation. Today, in the final episode of this season, we'll hear Saigo give his talk, Shadows Crossing, Tones of Voice Continued, which was originally given October 24th, 2019, at the Anchorage Museum in Anchorage, Alaska. This lecture begins with a recording of Billie Holiday. Please enjoy. Thank you. Uh, that was a live recording of Billie Holiday from 1948. I wonder where our love has gone. This lecture begins with a quote uh, from the poet Audre Lorde, taken from an interview in 1992. What I leave behind has a life of its own. I've said this about poetry. I've said it about children. Well, in a sense, I'm saying it about the very artifact of who I have been. I'm not sure what compels me to attempt this breakdown of my own poetic voice. It's the first clue I have had toward any sense of autobiography or how one becomes mixed up with and eventually possessed by poetry. The story springs out alongside those truths we are willing to go back and uncover. It seemed easiest to separate this venture out into three sections, music, the image, and ending finally with history. Recent history, as well as being placed back in First Nation time. These are all components of the overall voyage, the knocking together of ships in their harbors at night, 
Sometimes all three of these components come sailing into the room to shadow one another, and sometimes they visit separately as crystalline starting points. When I find myself slipping into writing poetry, a certain tonality seems present and beckoning as a portal. A sparse handful of dead tinsel is tacked above the rusted doorframe, waving in a slight wind. The stray isolation chamber would be another apt description, but it can start in such a hurry, depending on re dependent on reaching towards scraps of paper when dead ink pens and broken pencils surround you, scribbling frantically on the backs of bills or speaking jumbled notes into your nearly dead phone, hoping that later on these notes will trigger a certain manner of address that might carry you through to the end of a new piece. I do not read music, nor do I play an instrument of any kind, though I have been accused more than once of singing my poems. At first, I was slightly put off by this description, thinking my accents, silences, or pauses within a line to be fairly subtle, but now I think I know what it was they meant by this. I never let the music of the line dissolve completely, and those edges, though always fading fast, will attach themselves to the next island of words, but without ever dying away completely. Every, utter, every utterance is overlaid and connected acoustically in performance, no matter the mists and miles across them, as John Wieners once wrote, what we would traverse to be together. I fell in love with Billie Holiday singing because it was something I was allowed to discover for myself. I remember that my parents had gone to Nashville in 1993 to record an album. I was 15 years old. At some point during the two weeks they were away, I bought a cassette tape of Holiday's famous 1930s Columbia recordings backed by the Teddy Wilson Orchestra, with Lester Young often a side Holiday to mirror a few phrases and to elongate and drift behind others what jazz musicians of that period liked to call filling up the windows. By the time my parents had returned from Nashville, I had memorized every inflection on that Billie Holiday cassette. I was hypnotized by her laid-back phrasing, as well as the drastic change of tone in Holiday's voice with each passing decade, plus the fact that in every setting, the band seemed to be following the singer, not the other way around. But there was, of course, an enormous amount of struggle to Holiday's life story, her on and off dependence upon drugs and alcohol, the, re the rebellion of performing and recording the anti-lynching song Strange Fruit in 1939, her 1947 imprisonment at Alderson Penitentiary following years of extensive surveillance and harassment by Harry J. Anslinger, then director of the FBI. Upon her release from prison in 1948, she was essentially robbed of her livelihood through the blatant withholding of her cabaret card. An artist needed this card to sing in the clubs of New York City, anywhere they sold alcohol. It was tantamount to a form of exile as she was forced to leave home in order to make a living. I can't help but think of John Keats, of the old die-hard pairing forced upon us as poets, truth and beauty. If, in fact, we are interested in truth as a backdrop, we should be teaching the life of Billie Holiday in order to get at the true nature of subjugation in this country. 
So often the lens we are offered is that of our forefathers. Why must we constantly recast history within the myth of the American dream? The story of Billie Holiday has been told many times and in many forms. I think I have read almost all of them. A few that stand out include two books aimed at young adults, one by poet and publisher Hetty Jones, titled Big Star Falling Mama, Five Women in Black Music, as well as Don't Explain, a biography written in the form of a long poem by Alexis Duveau. Lady Sings the Blues is the ghost-written memoir Holiday completed with journalist William Dufty in 1956. My personal favorite of the Holiday biographies was written by Donald Clark, titled Wishing on the Moon. It was published in the fall of 1995, less than a year after my obsession with Holiday's music began. I had collected huge amounts of Billie Holiday records by this point from every period, and I once went so far as to write Donald Clark in order to date one particular live set that had offered no recording information. He actually wrote back and identified the set as stemming from an engagement at Miss Olivia Davis's patio lounge in Washington, D.C. in 1956. In an interview conducted by Mike Wallace that same year, Holiday was asked, why is it that so many jazz musicians die young? We try to live 100 days in one day, and we try to please so many people. Like myself, I want to bend this note and bend that note, sing this way and sing that way, and eat all the good foods and travel all around the world in one day, and you can't do it. Some of my favorite occasional writing about Billie Holiday has been done by poets. There is, of course, The Day Lady Died by Frank O'Hara, in the poem, O'Hara leads us through the details of an afternoon spent running around New York City. The poem begins to slow down as he asks the tobacconist at the Ziegfeld Theater for a copy of the New York Post with her face on it. As the reality of Holiday's death sets in, the poet begins to think back over his not-so-distant past. And I am sweating a lot by now and thinking of leaning on the John Doerr in the five spot while she whispered a song along the keyboard to Mal Waldron, and everyone and I stopped breathing. In their novel Inferno, Eileen Miles describes Holiday's late, tattered 50s voice as, quote, a scratch where a croon used to be. John Wieners wrote a poem titled Broken Hearted Melodies about meeting Holiday in a bar after her show with his lover in tow. It ends with a description similar to Eileen's. Billy's gray hair was Parisian style, and her singing Big Apple. Her voice is still rotting nectarines. Sometimes the poem need not even be for Billie Holiday, and I can still hear her intimate carving into space as an influence. I hear both her phrasing and mythology at play in this piece from a poem by Jane Cortez, titled Rose Solitude for Duke Ellington. Ask me, essence of rose solitude, chickadee from Kansas, that's me. I sleep on cotton bones, cotton tails, and mellow myself in empty ballrooms. I am no fly-by-night, look at my resume. I walk through the eyes of staring lizards, I throw my neck back to floor show on bumping goat skins in front of my stage fright. 
I cover the hands of Duke, who like Satchmo, like Nat King Cole, will never die, because love, they say, never dies. Amiri Baraka wrote a beautiful paragraph on Holiday's style in 1962, three years after her death. This piece is titled The Dark Lady of the Sonnets and was eventually included in Baraka's 1967 collection, Black Music. Nothing was more perfect than she was, no, nor more willing to fail, if we call failure something light can realize. Once you have seen it or felt whatever thing she conjured growing in your flesh, at the point where what she did left singing, you were on your own. At the point where what she was was in her voice, you listen and make your own promises. More than I have felt to say, she says always. More than she has ever felt is what we mean by fantasy. Emotion is wherever you are. She stayed in the street. A voice that grew from a singer's instrument to a woman's. And from that, those last records critics say are weak to a black landscape of need and perhaps suffocated desire. Sometimes you are afraid to listen to this lady. I remember that when listening to Billie Holiday a few years later in college, my roommates would sometimes comment on her later Verve recordings as depressing. Somehow I had always stayed ahead of that interpretation. I was listening for the slight delay, the authority thrown down in a single gesture, how every silence locked into place, the encroaching rasp enhanced the sensation of her voice being chiseled out from the darkness over and over. And for all these years, the realms within her voice have continued to unfold before me. Many of the 1950s records were rearranged versions of songs she had recorded with Teddy Wilson in the 1930s, meaning by this point she had assembled her own songbook out from the oeuvres of Ellington, Gershwin, Arlen, Strayhorn, etc. This sense of rendition reminds me that as poets we do not simply read the poems of other poets, we cover them, that is to say inhabit and reinterpret the lyric. The songs considered to belong to Holiday are those imparted with an entirely new melody. I also, I also continue to feed off all of the old writing slogans which I have memorized, those I keep in mind for myself as well as future students. The most elegiac and lyrical and redeeming is Ted Berrigan's line, be born again daily, die nightly for a change of style. I think it's best that we hear this line within the context of the entire poem. It's titled Whitman in Black. For my sins, I live in the city of New York. Whitman's city lived in, in Melville's senses, urban inferno, where love can stay only for a minute, then has to go to get some work done. Here, the detective and the small-time criminal are one, and though the cases get solved, the machine continues to run. But it's only here you can turn around 360 degrees, and everything is clear, from here at the center to every point along the circle of horizon. Here you can see for miles and miles and miles, be born again daily, die nightly for a change of style. Here, clearly here, see with affection, 
bleakly cultivate compassion, Whitman's walk unchanged after its fashion. Die nightly for a change of style. I always forget about the be born again daily part. That slight addition makes the line even more indestructible. At the time he wrote this poem, summer of 1977, Ted Berrigan was an acknowledged master of the serial collage and of condensing individual lines. In Whitman in Black, he retools these sensations slightly. We are handed a hard-boiled Raymond Chandler-like narrative. Berrigan exploits the fact of his own mythic status as a New York City poet and this myth is allowed to bleed through tonally and to pool up in places. The proverbial old hat in secret closet. The poem's effects are exquisitely timed out. In Berrigan's hands, the last poem is just a grid for any number of nights when the light beckons through a new tear in the screen. As if we could ever change our actual walk, these constant augmentations to the process are in some ways useless there are elements of our voices that will remain unchanged. Everything eventually gets left behind, and this state of mind is romantic. The machine continues to run. Maybe all this time I have just been seeking companions in these triggers and assignments. I read through a lot of poetry after my first summer at Naropa Institute, 1996 because I simply wrote down page after page of names as they came up, proper nouns, book titles, presses. I was 18 years old. I began to get very caught up in Robert Creeley's work and to write endless, piss-poor imitations of him. I was attracted to the Elsa Dorfman photo that graced the cover of his collected poems. It is a shy and slightly obscured portrait. I think his hand is in motion. His single eye gives his face an alluring and skeletal weight. It appears to be early morning. In the actual writing, I was taken with his minimal and cutting approach in terms of what made it down onto the page. I could understand each and every word used in the poetry. The words used were often quite short. Words like things, one, fact, if, edges. All these seemingly simple words are made so jaggedly present through an incisive patterning. It is not the words themselves, but the space they take up as marked, as reset. They have to be read with this constantly sharpening edge. Otherwise, in the end, they seem to carry no weight. The whole question seemed to be if the action imposed by his line breaks could propel Creeley to complete the poem. The drama was in his cutting of the brush, his hacking out large, permanent, asymmetrical pieces. I experienced his poetry as an invitation to write. This is a Robert Creeley poem titled Variations, from my favorite of his books, Words, published in 1965. There is love only as love is. These senses recreate their definition. A hand holds within itself all reason. The eyes have seen such beauty, they close, but continue. So the voice again, these senses recreate their singular condition, felt and felt again. I hear, I hear the mind close, the voice go on beyond it, the hands open, hard, they hold so closely themselves, 
only empty grasping of such sensation. Here, there, where the echoes are louder, clearer senses of sound, opening and closing. No longer love's only mind's intention, eyes sight, hands holding, broken to echoes. These senses recreate their definition. I hear the mind close. The poem seems to be charting a fit of haunted rhyming music or to be begging a description of what goes on when the language presents itself as malleable or driven purely by music. It is a sort of literal charting, except that the phrasing and the feeling are always at the mercy of the actual performance, the room, an audience. Creeley once related that at an early reading, he came off stage after what he considered to be a good performance only to find the person seated next to him patting him on the back, trying to comfort him, assuming that he had been a nervous wreck, entirely short of breath. Creeley was forced to say explicitly, no, I want the poems to sound like that. In a 1988 documentary on Creeley by Bruce Jackson and Diane Christian, the poet speaks of going into a space one would ordinarily associate with musical composition rather than written verse. My sense is that it's a human capacity or capability or possibility that occurs in much the same way that someone's ability to sing. I mean, you train it, you can train it by practice and attention, but you paradoxically can't determine what it's going to do. I'm not sure all poets feel these encroaching fits of musicality, or maybe they appear as transient energy. Like my compulsion to steal the way Clark Coolidge leans into his abstractions so severely and over again, and that his use of syntax becomes a sort of guardrail, or how Eileen Miles continually carves out their own colloquial shoulder of the line, and that the poet had to work each and every time to hollow out that space within their performance. There are only so many bars or syllables available with which to make your statement. Robert Creeley's tone is revealing in the same way Holiday's singing style arrests us, catches our ear. The event is drawn out syllable by syllable. The listener is thrown so far inside of the lyric before any thought is given to the body unfolding. Fire delights in its form is another great Creeley quote via William Blake, which seems to pick the poet out from the blaze they almost certainly ignited. Why does Creeley's halting gestural way appeal to me? I realized fairly recently that all the ticks and stutters and heavy breaths are in fact the mortar for any given reading, bristling at points. This long unwinding of the poem and its mortar have been expanded upon further in the writing of Eileen Miles, a poet who has gone ahead to expand even that narrow space in which we speak between poems Miles has written so well of what being in the grip of poetry actually feels like. The following passage is lifted from an essay at the end of their 1991 poetry collection, Not Me, an essay titled, How I Wrote Certain of My Poems. The process of the poem, the performance of it, I mentioned is central to an impression I have that life is a rehearsal for the poem or the final moment of spiritual revelation. I literally stepped out of my house that night, feeling a poem coming on. 
Incidentally, it hadn't started raining yet, so I wasn't alone in being ready to burst. I was universally pent up. I had done my research pretty unconsciously, celebrating the mood I was in. I've had this feeling before of going out to get a poem, like hunting. The night that comes to mind is the night I wrote the earlier poem. I felt erotic, oddly magnetic, like photographic paper. As I walked, I was recording the details. I was the details. I was the poem. This idea of life as rehearsal for the event of the poem would seem to enable Miles' gift for total emotional recall. When you read their poems alone after hearing the author aloud, their tone is available on call forever after. Their thin, broken line always provides for a brave leap out into the air, as well as an iron grip, a gift for hanging on. The poem as a shelter becomes this slightly shrunken, tomb-like space, and the voice is sounding out from the ziggurat. But it, but it must be cut into, in this vernacular way, attacked as a breathless rush on repeat in order to have our desired pace, the stream of imagery even hinted at. You are keeper and carrier of the poem, as Miles says. This poem is titled Vista and is also taken from Not Me. And this poem is dedicated to David Trinidad. Here I am in my house, a place of permanence. Only dried flowers are allowed. Goldenrod from Myra's. Friday's rain is sizzling. No wonder I won't budge. Unpeeling yellow post-it pads to reveal the week's wisdom. But this is just the world. It's a real gong show. A little stagey, but nice. You shouldn't give money to people you don't like. On days when bums disgust me, I don't give them a cent. No wonder I stay in. There's my jeans with the ass torn out, an act of time, not violence. I lay old clothes on the trash cans out front and see how many trips in and out it takes for them to vanish. Once it took two days for a shirt to be gone, to feel so criticized by the streets. My thoughts aren't staying in. To live in the streets, what a thought, what a word. A doorway could be a roof, an abandoned car. It gets relative, I suppose. For a few years, people who know you take you in, feed you, bathe you. Then even that's over, if you live. I live here and I write poems, write about art, though they rarely print it. There's a hermit in my soul, five apples, one with leaves and twig on the wooden counter. And beyond the rusty window gates, there are trees. Robert says you could paint things your whole life, the same things Cezanne did. Because my trees have gone sparkling yellow in the rain, after 11 years of living here, it's a first to see the yellow bouncing back after the rain. I did, I did stay here. And how to reconcile my endless involvement with the image? I think I hold images in mind as unfixed or as distortion in motion. Perhaps this is why I've become so dependent on the writings of visual artists, not just painters and sculptors, but filmmakers and choreographers too. Even music feels visual when looking at scores by John Cage, or I think of the unfolding of pageantry in the Sun Ra Orchestra. 
I think my addiction to artist writing stems from the possibility of picking up their ways of saying things, their diction as well as the facts of their lives, their aspirations for a particular work or series. They are often testimonials on how to continue, as though they had finally reached a clearing wherein all the shadows cast are accessible as intimate and dissolving tones of voice. Artist writings always sound so devotional. After years of admiring their work in museums, I am often ravenous for their writings or any kind of transcription of voice. I definitely enjoy the writings of artists more often than I do the artwork of poets. Agnes Martin, Philip Guston, and Joe Brainerd are favorites. I have granted each of them a sphinx-like quality. A fantasy is played out of their turning a solid object into emotional language, and they each manage this task differently. One could argue that Brainerd was as innovative in his writing as he was in his visual work. The same goes for David Winorowitz, or the work of Atel Ednan. There is not only an equal strength to be found, but an active dependence on text, a need to state your beliefs that is similar to writing poetry, except the image feels less except the impulse feels less bridled to music, more like taking part in a long quest for imagery. In painter Agnes Martin's writing, her concern is often placed on how to live life in such a way that the impulse to create is ensured to reappear. This is lifted from a longer piece titled Reflections. Moments of awareness of perfection and of inspiration are alike, except that inspirations are often directives to action. Many people think that if they are attuned to fate, all their inspirations will lead them toward what they want and need. But inspiration is really just the guide to the next thing and maybe what we call success or failure. The bad paintings have to be painted, and to the artist, these are more valuable than those paintings later brought before the public. A work of art is successful when there is a hint of perfection present. At the slightest hint, the work is alive. The life of the work depends upon the observer according to his own awareness of perfection and inspiration. The responsibility of response to art is not with the artist. To feel confident and successful is not natural to the artist. To feel insufficient to experience disappointment and defeat in waiting for inspiration is the natural state of mind of an artist. For we can see perfectly, but we cannot do perfectly. Many artists live socially without disturbance to mind, but others must live the inner experiences of mind, a solitary way of living. Or Andy Warhol, who says basically the same thing, but with his own workhorse assembly line cut to the quick tonality. Don't think about making art, just get it done. Let everyone else decide if it's good or bad, whether they love it or hate it. While they are deciding, make even more art. Marcel Duchamp offered his own paranoid descriptions of making, but with a more material slant. Here he is in 1966, speaking with Pierre Caban on the making of a painting from 1911, Sad Young Man on a Train. First, there's the idea of the movement of the train, and then that of the sad young man who is in a corridor and who is moving about. Thus, there are two parallel movements corresponding to each other. Then there is the distortion of the young man. I had called this elementary parallelism. It was a formal decomposition, 
that is, linear elements following each other like parallels and distorting the object. The object is completely stretched out as if elastic. The lines follow each other in parallels while changing subtly to form the movement or the form of the young man in question. I also used this procedure in the nude descending a staircase. I think a steady diet of artist writings have resulted in permission to experiment, accepting restlessness and self-critique as a natural state. How can I change my relationship to the materials of writing? Die nightly for a change of style. I think artist writings are often poetry in tonal disguise. And conversely, that some of my favorite poetry often sounds like the most incisive and stirring manifesto on art making. Like these lines from Diane de Prima's revolutionary letter number 75, Rant. The ground of imagination is fearlessness. Discourse is videotape of a movie of a shadow play, but the puppets are in your hand. Your counters in a multidimensional chess, which is divination and strategy. The war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. It then basically disappeared in the, in the culture. My guitar player, wonderful, incredible musician Larry Mitchell, grew up in Bed-Stuy. And he said when he was growing up, there was, they were told all through school that there were no more Indians. And that's, that's the state of the country. Most, uh, most people think of Disney's Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves, those images. And those are the only images. They don't have images of my grandmother, Naomi Harjo, blowing saxophone in Indian territory or my great, 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 great grandfather seven generations from Manawi, who was like Cesar Chavez or Martin Luther King, who was a freedom fighter, uh, a healer, um, uh, knew horses, and uh, stood up against Andrew Jackson and then moved to Indian territory. And, and, you know, we're regular people. We have, we, you know, we're mothers, fathers, we're, um, you know, we fail, we succeed, we're artists, we're, we, we're human beings. And I've always said that if my work does nothing else, I want people to know us as human beings, not as figures they can manipulate because we're dead. I think one of the most powerful things that ever happened performing-wise is I performed, I had just been to the Battle of Horseshoe Bend Grounds, and I went to Auburn University and stood up and said, I am Anahui's granddaughter. And everybody looked at me like I would, you know, with their mouths open. And I realized they thought, I, to them, I was essentially a ghost because the way history, the history had written us as defeated, disappeared. And that hasn't really changed that much. That is our current poet laureate, Joy Harjo a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation speaking out on the necessity of sharing our history in order to move past typical false narratives of native extinction. I feel an immediate internal division when speaking in terms of things past. I can trace the genocide and poverty back too quickly. And then often as a native artist, you are thought of as locked in the past, traditional, harmless, even extinct when in fact you have always felt like proof that the job was in fact not carried out completely. 
For the past year or so, I have been editing a collection with Joy Harjo and a team of 15 other native poets. It is titled, When the Light of the World Was Dimmed, Our Songs Came Through, a Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry. As editors, we offered our living expertise by working specifically on the sections that corresponded with our tribal identities. I was invited to take part in the editing of what came to be the largest physical landmass of all the sections, the Pacific Northwest, Alaska, and Hawaii. In terms of varied landscapes and traditions, we may as well have been conjoining three countries from opposite ends of the earth. We solved this disjunction by providing three different introductions for our sections. Brandy Nalali McDougall wrote on poets from the Pacific Rim. Diane Benson wrote of Inuit approaches to verse making. And my own introduction, The Ark of the Edifice, attempts to uncover the tribes of Washington State, Oregon, and Idaho. In spite of the fact that we wrote separate introductions, we did edit the entire section together. Here is a piece from my as yet unpublished introduction. Native people of the Northwest had no choice but to live in relation to poetry from the very outset of creation. We had to learn to identify and convert the individual elements of earth into forms of protection and sustenance, a so-called lifestyle. This would involve courtship and gathering of every necessary berry, moss, bark, and wood. I remember stories of Suquamish women leaving for several days on summer journeys over the Cascade Mountains into eastern Washington to gather luminous bear grass, those pieces that would sometimes tell stories along the outer surface of our baskets. This draping of my history within the landscape has become an available arc that I can tap into at will. I first met Joy Harjo in 2013. We were both taking part in a conference on 21st century native poetics hosted by Poets House in Manhattan. This was a hugely significant event in my life as I had been asked to take part in only one other conference devoted to native poetry. And that conference had taken place almost 10 years earlier. By the year 2013, I had published three full-length collections and numerous self-published chapbooks. I was 34 years old. During the early 2000s, while living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I would hear from fellow writers of color that they could only seem to get published in anthology situations in which your most explicit identity-themed pieces would be corralled into one book, and then the editors were even nice enough to go and drop you off somewhere. It was said to be very hit and run. Meanwhile, I was having almost the opposite experience. I felt invisible to whatever circle of contemporary native poetry did exist. Or was there even one definitive circle? I had read and liked Sherwin Bitsui's work, but other than that, I had no idea what was happening. And to be fair, I wasn't necessarily reaching out to anyone either. It was emotionally akin to my almost 20-year experience of being what tribes like to call an off-reservation Indian, though that term always felt so clinical, especially as it was often one native person talking about another. At that point, I worried that my unapologetic queerness almost overrode the fact that I was a native writer. My fidgeting and experimental style had formed an artificial gate around my body. Since that conference at Poets House in 2013, 
Its full title was Native Innovation, Indigenous American Poetry in the 21st Century. Ever since then, I have found myself included among a new generation of Native poets. A handful of anthologies have been compiled over the past few years, notably New Poets of Native Nations, edited by Hyde Erdrich and published by Gray Wolf. The June 2018 issue of Poetry Magazine was entirely devoted to Native poetics. And what does it mean to finally feel acknowledged as a Native poet? It means that my preferred reality would be one in which I am constantly in collaboration with other Native poets. And to fight to keep this collaboration going becomes part of the overall vision, the struggle itself. I have now had the pleasure of working alongside Julian Talamantes Berlowski, Lely Long Soldier, D.G. Okpik, Cassandra Lopez, Reed Gomez, Natalie Diaz, Jennifer Forrester, Laura Day, Allison Hedgecoke, and many others. The fact that Joy offered me an opportunity to both learn and reshape our literary history still feels unreal. This invitation has enabled me to begin to speak for more than myself. In fact, when the time came for Joy to edit my introduction, the one major change she made was to turn every I into the word we. Here is one of my favorite poems of Joy's dealing with a common occurrence among Native people, probably all people of color, all survivors actually, when the history of genocide must reinvade our body. This is from her 2015 collection, Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. And this poem is titled, In Mystic. My path is a cross of burning trees lit by crows carrying fire in their beaks. I ask the guardians of these lands for permission to enter. I am a visitor to this history. No one remembers to ask anymore, they answer. What do I expect in this New England seaport town near the birthplace of democracy where I am a ghost? Even a casino can't make an Indian real, or should I say native or savage or demon, and with what trade language? I am trading a backwards look for jeopardy. I agree with the ancient European maps. There are monsters beyond imagination that troll the waters. The Puritans determined ships did fall off the edge of the world. I am happy to smell the sea, walk the narrow winding streets of shops and restaurants, and delight in the company of friends, trees, and small winds. I would rather not speak with history, but history came to me. It was dark before daybreak when the fire sparked. The men left on a hunt from the Pequot village, here where I stand. The women and children left behind were set afire. I do not want to know this, but my gut knows the language of bloodshed. Over 600 were killed to establish a home for God's people, crowed the Puritan leaders in their Sunday sermons. And then history was gone in a trail of smoke. There is still burning, though we live in a democracy erected over the burial ground. This was given to me to speak. Every poem is an effort at ceremony. I asked for a way in. That poem is dated October 31st, 2009, so almost 10 years old. 
I would rather not speak with history, but history came to me. Finally, a single line I can use to answer all those terrible literal questions about how it feels to be a native of this country. It also lays bare our ability to dip in between the realms of past and present in order to catch the song thrown out by someone's ancestors. They may not even be members of your tribe per se, but they still need a vessel through which to speak. We live in a democracy erected over the burial ground. Why are children told that ghosts do not exist when in fact we have to learn to take on these ghosts, when they feel so inherent to our landscape anyway? Why not draw upon each other's histories within the classroom in order to chase this darkness down? The poet and activist John Trudell of the Santee Dakota Nation often spoke of such darkness using the useful term predatory energy. This is an excerpt from his book of interviews and poetry titled Stick Man, published in 1995. Sometimes they have to kill us. They have to kill us because they can't break our spirit. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There is a way to live with the earth and a way not to live with the earth. We choose the way of earth. Universally, the earth was regarded as the mother. Historically speaking, another idea appeared, and the other idea said that God was number one, and God was a male, and God was removed from the earth. God was somewhere else. And this is when all the predatory energy began, and its evolution has been continuing since then. Once the dominant energy became a god removed from the earth, then it became okay to attack and exploit the earth. As that attack began, fear became one of its main, main instruments. In order to combat this fear, our new collective anxiety, I find myself attempting to answer questions posed by revolutionary poets. Audre Lorde begins her autobiography, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name, by asking herself a series of questions, the second of which is, to whom do I owe the symbols of my survival? The question is pitched in such a way as to allow all poets access to a new kind of flow, to be able to acknowledge a wounded space as one of value. Master poets and teachers can manipulate tonality in this way. The condensed musicality of her question offers dignity to each one of our histories. It is a question offered in the spirit of leaving the door to composition propped open, only to face your favored strains of music, destabilization of the image, and the jacket that is history coming off. Thank you. That was Cedar Saigo giving his talk, Shadows Crossing, Tones of Voice Continued. Saigo's book of collected Bagley Wright lectures, Guard the Mysteries, is forthcoming from Wave Books in June 2021 and is on sale now at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, please subscribe.
Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarnot, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to the Anchorage Museum for hosting this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.